Hello, I'm Dr. Annaline Weston, Dental Legal Consultant at Dental Protection. Welcome to Risk Matters, our latest series of podcasts created specifically for dental practitioners in Australia. As the name suggests, Risk Matters is all about managing risk. In this podcast series, we'll be taking your feedback and queries and putting them to leading industry experts, getting them to answer the difficult questions about managing risk and working safely. It's all about what to do when managing risks matters most. So in this edition, we're going to be talking to my dear friend and oral medicine specialist, Amanda Poon Nguyen, about oral cancer, which, yeah, it's a topic that probably we need to be giving more attention to than we do. And Amanda and I are going to walk through that today. So for those of you who don't know Amanda, she's a Perth oral medicine specialist and adjunct senior lecturer at the University of Western Australia and consultant at Perth's Children's Hospital. She's the chair of the Australasian Sleep Association Dental Sleep Medicine Council, the chair of the Oral Medicine Academy of Australasia Education and Scientific Committee. She's on the board of studies for oral medicine at the Royal Australasian College of Dental Surgeons and on an expert advisory panel for Head and Neck Cancer Australia. In addition to all of this, Amanda's uh, the president of the Women in Dentistry Society of Western Australia and the secretary of the RACDS WA Regional Committee. And she's on multiple committees, actually, and not for profit boards in dentistry and health related causes. So thank you so much for joining me today, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me, Annaline. Now, I'm really excited that we finally get to talk about this because it's something that you and I talk about a lot. And I think that it's going to be really helpful for our listeners to get some of your knowledge on this. So I wanted to start off, Amanda, with maybe a bit of a contentious question. Um, is oral cancer or still the same issue it was, say, 20 years ago when I graduated, or is the incidence declining? That's actually a really good question. So when we talk about head and neck cancer, oral cancer or oral pharyngeal cancer, I think it's quite important that we think about them uh, as separate diagnoses because what has traditionally happened in the past is that um, all of these cancers have been conflated and we've sort of looked at them as one entity. Now, the literature in recent years has separated them because the etiology, prognosis and incidence of all of these head and neck cancers are different. So to answer your question, the uh, incidence of oral pharyngeal cancer and oral cavity cancer is increasing. The incidence of lip cancer is actually decreasing. So when you look at the studies that say that the incidence of head and neck cancer are falling, it's because they usually have included lip cancer in there, but we do know that it will be an increasing problem when we're talking about oral cavity cancer and oral pharyngeal cancer in the future. Um, Lip cancer is decreasing because we are becoming more sun smart, but there are more etiological factors for oral pharyngeal and oral cancer that uh, are coming into play now. And we call it, you know, the changing face of oral pharyngeal cancer. And that's usually HPV related. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you, Amanda. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because it just goes to show the slip slop slap campaign really has um, shown some benefits for our industry, hasn't it? For our profession regarding that. Definitely, definitely. So you mentioned the changing face of oral cancer or oral pharyngeal cancer. And this is something that I think is fascinating, really, because we were taught back Mm. at dental school about the risk factors and about the types of patients and the types of habits that led to patients getting oral cavity cancers and oral pharyngeal cancers. Mm. So do you think those are still as relevant today as they were or are all bets off now and anyone can get cancer? 
So the most common demographic of people who are developing oral pharyngeal and oral cavity cancers are still your older males, age 60 and above, who have had a long history of smoking and alcohol consumption. So it's not to say that we can ignore uh, that demographic. However, there are younger people who are developing oral cavity squamous cell carcinoma, oral pharyngeal carcinoma. Sometimes we are unsure of the etiology. So a few years ago, a few of the listeners may remember that there were a couple of big news articles about how younger women under the age of 40 were developing tongue cancers um, and the cause of that is unsure because even if they have alcohol and smoking consumption it's not to the same rate as someone say above the age of 60 would have so even though there may be some risk factor exposure it's not to the same degree this was before vaping was widespread so vaping couldn't really be uh, couldn't really be attributed to that either it is thought that there is some sort of genetic component so my best tip for this is that if you see a younger person who does have a suspicious looking lesion or there are red flags, not to dismiss the possibility of them having head and neck cancer just because they're young or they haven't smoked because we do know that that's changing. Yeah, you don't judge on age and gender. It's interesting mm. you say that. I remember in my first practice when I was a recent graduate at 23, there was a 26-year-old, non-drinking, non-smoking, male, absolute fitness freak on his bike every day cycling a squillion kilometers and um, lesion on the side of his tongue oral cancer had a radical neck dissection dissection but it wasn't um, successful at prolonging his life mm. and really nobody had any idea at all why why him mm. and I think this concept of being people being genetically predisposed I wonder if that's going to come out to be more true with the pa- or more uh, easy to assess with the passage of time. I think so, because we've seen that sort of in the breast cancer space. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we'll see what happens with head and neck cancer and, you know, and oral cancer. But one of the good tips that, oh, I think is a good tip. One of the tips that I have for, for the listeners is that if the patient has a family history of cancer, if they themselves have a history of cancer, particularly if it's, you know, cervical, penile, anal, anything like that, um, you, this, this should be a red flag in their medical history and you should be asking about family history history uh, if you're not already. So any cancers or just those HPV type cancers? To me, if they have had any cancer, I put them higher on the list of people that I would want to be wary of. So I would treat it as maybe not an outright flashing red flag, but, you know, like a like a like a pink flag, like something that I need to be aware of. Um, Uh So, yeah, so I I would definitely put that because we do know that cancer metastasizes as well to the oral cavity. So we are not necessarily talking about primary cancer here as well. So, you know, things like for females, the most common is breast cancer that can metastasize to the oral cavity for males. um, you know, it's things like uh, prostate cancer, you can get renal cancer. So cancers can metastasize to the oral cavity as well, uh, which we need to be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned vaping. So, of course, this is, uh, for somebody like me, um, something I didn't know anything about. And I've attended some of your presentations about vaping. So it's something that I can get a better understanding of. And in fact, I'm, I don't know if I'm ashamed to say or proud to say I'd never seen a vape before until you showed me what one looked like. And I found that really helpful because I've got teenage boys. So I just want to be sure that there's none of those turning up in my head <laughs> because I, would, I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have known. So is it too soon to know the effects that vaping is going to have on uh, cancers of the mouth and the oral pharynx, do you think? 
Yeah, it, it is too soon. Uh, the reason why I bring vapes around as well for these presentations that I'm giving is that they're so innocuous looking. They look like a fancy pen or they can look like a USB stick. So I think that vaping is a lot easier for the youngsters to do now than say for example cigarette smoking of, of a few of a few decades ago because it was harder to hide so i think that's that's one of the emerging spaces that um that, that we should all yeah. be aware of it is a, it is too early to tell there's no sort of good studies yet um theoretically and According to expert consensus, we do think that it will be a major issue. We do know that vaping increases the risk of respiratory issues. You can get vape-related uh, illness, which can be fatal. Um, the theory of it is that with the vapes, there are the same carcinogens in their essay in, uh, uh, in smoking. However, we don't know the effects of um, heat because we do know that the vapes will heat the liquid up to a certain temperature to vaporize them and anecdotally it does seem that people who are vaping are doing it a lot more than smoking because it's so easy to do yeah yeah it's um certainly going to be a watch this space isn't it and i think it's interesting one thing that when we looked at this together um mm. is how uh, appealing the packaging is and how appealing vapes are to young people like that it's it's incredibly clever marketing incredibly dangerous isn't it yes the good news is that that has started to change with some of the legislation so hopefully it's less of an issue with time i think in the short term there will still be a bit of a black market but i think with more education and more you know uh, legislation and changes from the government it will become like they seem to be acting a little bit quicker with this than with smoking. So fingers crossed. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Thank you, Amanda. Now, as you and I have discussed before, and I know it's something that we've both referenced in our presentations, we at Dental Protection, and I'm sure we're not alone in this across the indemnity and risk space, we're seeing a marked increase in cases relating to a missed diagnosis of cancer. Now, just to be clear, these are horrible cases. They're always incredibly unpleasant for everybody. They're horrible for obviously the patient and their family. They're horrible for the practitioner to carry as a burden of guilt. Um, they often result in quite upsetting outcomes. Um, they result, they're incredibly expensive to resolve because of the awfulness of the outcome. So I think when we consider that, there's no doubt at all that whoever the person is who's performing the regular examinations, so the person on the front line, they have an incredibly important role to play in identifying oral cancer. So I'm not going to say diagnosing because, of course, just identifying something that's not right, I guess, would be because I, I, there are obviously a specific way of diagnosing cancer. So let's go right back to basics. I'm a general practitioner, as you know, my patient comes in. So I'm going to start off with their medical history and I'm going to have a look for some red flags. So I'm going to have a look for previous family cancers, you said, mm -hmm. their own cancers. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to have a look for um, any risky habits, as it were, Anything else, Amanda? Anything else I need to be looking for there? Mm. Um, before I come to your question, Adeline, I think it's really important that we establish, because it sounds really basic, but I've seen things, you know, online on different forums, people asking questions, and I've interviewed a head and neck cancer survivor before for Head and Neck Cancer Day, um, doing a bit of like asking her about her experience. And I asked her what is the one thing that she would like dental professionals to know, because her dentist ended up being the one who uh, found her oral cancer. Wow. 
Mm, so her message was that she wants every dentist to be screening for oral cancer and looking in the mouth when they are doing when when people are seeing a dentist, and that really surprised me because I thought that it was assumed knowledge that dentists should and dental professionals should be doing screening or should be doing a thorough oral cavity head and neck examination. Um, and then recently, I've seen a couple of things online where people are asking should they be doing it. Uh, my answer is that I think every single patient, every time you do a comprehensive oral examination, every time you do a review examination, this should be included as part of it. So that's that's my first thing. I, I think um, in case it wasn't already uh, something that you are doing, I think you should be looking for it. Um, dentists- no, that's, that's a great point, Amanda. Sorry, mm-hmm. that's a great point. And I think that it's not just the examinations, of course, but we have patients who come in who haven't been in for a long time mm-hmm. and they might just come in with, say, a broken tooth. So it wouldn't necessarily be part of your normal process or procedure to go ahead and do that oral, um, to do a, a, a comprehensive screen on them because they've got a broken tooth. But actually, you need to be thinking broader that and saying, well, this patient hasn't been for ages, mm-hmm. so maybe I need to be taking a look. So I think dentists and dental professionals are generally pretty good at asking about things like smoking and alcohol consumption. I think a new thing that should be added is whether a patient vapes or not. Now that not that isn't necessarily going to be a glaring red flag as what based on the literature that we know now, but I think it will be. And the way that we can establish whether it's an issue or not is by keeping good records. So in future, we can look retrospectively at patients who have developed oral cancer to see if vaping actually was a factor or not. And the way that we start doing that is keeping good records of when they started vaping, how much they vape, and all of these sort of things. So smoking, alcohol, vaping, I like to put in alcohol-containing mouthwash. I know that that is a little bit controversial. Uh, some studies have shown that it is not a factor. Some bigger bigger studies, I think, have shown that there is an association. So I generally like to ask about that as well. And the big one is a family history of cancer or a self-history of cancer. So those are the ones that I think are important in the context of head and neck cancer to look into a patient's medical history. Now, sometimes if you really wanted to, I know some studies or some uh, organizations worldwide ask about sexual habits, oral sex, um, you know, all of that sort of stuff, last, last sexual encounter. I don't know if a general dentist is necessarily comfortable to do something like that. So I probably wouldn't recommend that unless you had a really good reason for doing so or you are comfortable and experienced in doing so. So I think the ones that I talked about, like the risk factors with tobacco, alcohol, vaping, and then your family history and your self-history and cancer are the ones that I wouldn't want to miss. Yeah, thanks, Amanda. So I've done that and now I'm looking at the patient and I'm going to do an extra oral examination. Mm. So purely from the position now, because obviously our listeners know how to perform an extra oral examination. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. purely through the filter of looking for signs of a Mm. potential head and neck cancer, Mm. which things am I looking for right now? Yeah. So first of all, the extra oral examination really starts before you put your hands on your patient. So we know that this includes the way the patient walks into their room, you know, how they've been answering your medical history, how they sit in the chair, the color of their face, their general health, all of that. Um, The big one that you don't want to miss with head and neck cancer is assessing for lymphadenopathy. And I feel that sometimes this is something that is done on autopilot or people don't quite understand what they're really feeling for when they check. So the neck is actually divided up into 
triangles and levels. So you want to have a refresher of your anatomy to know where these lymph nodes are and what you're feeling for. So once you know where you're feeling for your lymph nodes, so for example, you're starting in the submandibular region, um, sometimes people feel too softly, and I call that the butterfly fingers, where they sort of just lightly graze their fingers against the, the bottom chin, and they go, oh, look, that feels fine. Um, I think it actually has to ha needs to be done with adequate pressure, about a kilogram of pressure. And the way that I recommend people do it is to actually roll their fingers along the inferior border of their mandible to feel the lymph nodes in that way. Now, the things that you will be assessing for your lymph nodes will be uh, whether there is any fixation, enlargement, or tenderness. We'll start with fixation first, because if you find a fixed lymph node, and that is where the lymph node doesn't move around, um, it's not mobile, it's not soft, that is a red flag sign that patients should be referred urgently. Tenderness and enlargement, I think it is worth asking a few more questions. Is it unilateral? Is it bilateral? Is the patient coming down with something? Have they just recently recovered from, it, from an illness? That is probably worth you following up yourself. Don't forget that besides the submandibular lymph nodes, you should be checking the cervical lymph nodes as well. Um, I have been taught as well is that when I'm palpating down the cervical lymph nodes, which is along the anterior border of the sternocleidomastoid, you can actually very lightly grasp the trachea between your thumb and your index finger and give it a little bit of a wiggle. Um, normally, you would feel normal cartilaginous grating as you try to move the trachea around. All of that's normal. Um, if you feel that the trachea is not moving or you feel any unusual lumps or bumps in that area, that's something that I think probably should be uh, further investigated. So in the, in the context of head and neck uh, examination extra orally, I think that uh, the lymph node examination is really important. Let's briefly talk about lip as well, because I think it is really important that we are familiar with assessing lips. Lips can be really tricky. So the things that you would want to be looking for is if there is any sun damage in the area. Actually, besides the lips, you should be looking at all sun-damaged areas as well because I've picked up, you know, skin cancers on the ear, back of the neck, the scalp, things like that. So I have a really good look. But lips are the ones that especially we should not miss because we are looking directly at it, at it as we look into the mouth. So if there's any areas of persistent firmness, crusting, or ulceration, that's a red flag sign. Um, you will usually see signs of actinic colitis, so where there's generalized mucosal change, uh, where there is a blurring of the vermilion border, things like that you should be aware of. The reason why I say skin is quite tricky, and I don't mean to uh, diss any of my medical colleagues, like it's really not about that, but I do feel that lip cancers do tend to be missed when patients are doing a skin check. And I'm not sure whether it's because usually they are so used at looking at skin and exposed areas that with lips, they're not, it's not quite their thing. So I've got multiple patients and a lot of my colleagues do as well, where patients will go, oh no, my lips is fine. I just had a skin check. It's probably nothing, mm -hmm. uh, but it is something. And skin cancer, uh, lip cancer rates, although we do know are falling, is very high living in Australia. Mm. Mm. So have yeah, a good look absolutely. at their lips as well. Mm. And I would say that as uh, as someone who's looking at lips all the time, a dentist is actually really well placed to pick up something that's not quite right in the lip. I mean, obviously ask them how long it's been there and make sure it's not a cold sore and stuff like that. But, you know, um, don't underestimate uh, your your ability to detect precancerous or cancerous lesions of the lip proper as well. 
Yeah, that's great. So just going back to the palpation of the lymph nodes, one th resource that Amanda has on her, it's on your spoonful of oral medicine page, isn't it, is a diagram of the triangles. So I'm yes. going to put a link to that in the episode notes, because I do mm -hmm. think that that's really helpful. I saw it in one of your presentations, breaking the neck up into the triangles, and it certainly helped me better visualize when I'm doing, when I'm palpating someone's neck, like mm -hmm. I know where to palpate, but it just more mm -hmm. embedded back for me, why, why those areas? So I'll put that link in the episode notes. Yes. The other thing is talking about palpation. I know how important palpating is mm. with the lips. However, if there is a suspected lesion on the lip, we still palpate that or not? So this is where um, talking to the patient is really important because if it's a cold sore, I don't really want to be palpating no, it. They're no. not going to like that. <laughs> no, no. And I, and I don't want it either. Um, so, <laughs> so I think... Um, if you do feel that it is a potentially pre-malignant or malignant lesion, palpating intraoral and extraoral structures is really important. Because as we come to, and we talk about aniline in a little bit, the, the red flags of oral cancer, um, the red flags are induration and fixation of the lesion. And you can't tell that just by looking at it. So you need to be giving uh, potentially malignant lesions um, a bit of a feel to see what's happening. The other thing I forgot to say about the lymph nodes as well, when we're talking about enlargement, it can be very confusing for people to know whether the lymph node is actually enlarged or not. Because sometimes you may have a bigger patient, sometimes you're just not sure whether this is normal with where this is bigger. So you want, if anything is bigger than about one to two centimeters, which is about two frozen peas put together, that would be an enlarged lymph node. So um, that hopefully gives you a bit of a, a scale as to as to what you're feeling. No, that's really helpful. Thank you. So moving into the mouth then, mm. what am I looking for? Because I know that you have a very specific way that you screen somebody intraorally. So can you talk us through that, please? Mm -hmm. So first off, I would like to caveat this by saying that there is no one right way to do it. I feel as long as you're not missing anything and you are doing it the same way every single time for all of your patients, because then it becomes more of a habit, more of muscle memory, and you're less likely to miss lesions. So the way that I like to do it first, obviously, after my extra oral examination, I have a good look at the patient's lips to check if there's any sort of signs of sun damage, any areas of persistent persistent firmness, crusting or ulceration. Then I move into the oral cavity and then I look at the labial mucosa, um, upper and lower. And it's quite important that I am palpating these as well for any sort of subtle swellings. Uh, if you get, you know, swellings on the lower lip, sometimes there can be mucoseals and things like that. But you can't forget that you can, besides um, squamous cell carcinoma, which is the big focus of what we're talking about, because that's usually 90, 95% of oral cancers that we're talking about. Don't forget, you can get other types of cancers like minor salivary gland neoplasms and things like that. So you want to be looking and then palpating every structure. So I do oral cavity, then I do buccal mucosa left and right. I do the gingiva, I do all surfaces of the tongue. So with the tongue, it is quite important that you get the patient to stick the tongue out. I've got a few, pay I've got a few uh, dentists who ask me, oh, my patient hates the feel of gauze on their tongue. And maybe I'm a little bit unsympathetic, but I'm like, you know, explain to your patients what you're doing. And if it's part of oral cancer screen and you need to have a good look at their tongue, I am sure that they can tolerate having uh, the tongue, the gauze on their tongue for a brief moment. Or alternatively, if you really can, if they really can't, just use two mouth mirrors to retract oral tissues to make sure. So you have to be looking at the posterior dorsal tongue, the posterior lateral tongue, ventral tongue, and floor of mouth. We know tongue and floor of mouth are the high risk sites in the oral cavity 
activity. So you want to make sure you're not missing anything. The other thing about the floor of mouth, um, with that same piece of gauze that I used to retract the patient's tongue um, and to have a good look around it, I use that gauze to dry the patient's floor of mouth. Because if it's full of saliva and there's a lot of reflection, you can't really assess very well. So dry it with a piece of gauze don't use the triplex, they don't tend to like that as much. And then have a really good look at it and see if there's anything that's going on. Now, when I do my intraoral examination, I actually have my loops and my light on. And then after, um, and you know, I have a look at everything. After I do the floor of mouth, I would do the heart and soft palate. With the heart palate, I actually like to run my index finger along mm -hmm. the heart palate. And obviously, I explain to my patient what I'm doing because sometimes with the subtle swellings of the heart palate, it's actually quite difficult to tell if you're looking at it from one angle so I tell my patients what I'm doing and then I have a really good look I have a look at the soft palate the retromolar trigone you know I have a look as far back down their throat as I can another common question I get asked what happens if the patient has a gag reflex do the best you can apologize to your patient if it triggers the gag reflex you know that gives you an opportunity actually to have a good look and to assess you know if they've got brilliant you can see really well <laughs> that's it that's it and, and most patients are fine you know they apologize to me I was like oh no please don't apologize you know gag reflex normal I just want to make sure I'm having a really good look and they they understand yeah because it's important mm. now You've mentioned red flags. What mm. are my red flags? Yeah. So the red flags, let's talk about ulcers first because ulcers mm -hmm. are such a broad category. Ulcers can be anything from from trauma to recurrent epistomatitis to, you know, all the way to like oral cancer. And ulcers are most common. If we see persistent ulcers in the mouth and we're thinking malignancy, it will most probably be um, a uh, oral cavity squamous cell carcinoma. So you want to be particularly careful of ulcers that do not heal. Actually, that being said, you want to be careful of anything that does not heal in the mouth. Mm -hmm. So if you've done a periodontal debridement, if you've taken a tooth out, the socket doesn't heal or anything, you know, those are all red flags. So back to yeah. us. Mm. Yeah, so I found oral cancer that way. I think we've talked about that before. I had a patient mm. who um, I extracted some teeth, the, uh, often of um, some periapical radiographs and an OPG, some lower anterior teeth, mm -hmm. nothing to see here. Mm -hmm. uh, refer them to the prosthetist to have um, their dentures made. Mm -hmm. And they came back in then uh, maybe three months later because their denture wasn't fitting and they had, mm -hmm. had they had oral cancer had popped up through all the sockets. It had just yes. created some space. And yes. it was a really quite confronting to see because it was it was really quite obvious what it was in that mm. situation and I took some mm. more radiographs and the bony destruction was extraordinary at that level mm. of course we were able to refer him off straight away but that mm. non-healing socket I think that's that's a really important one that's easily overlooked I think mm. And also unexplained mobility in the first place. So if the patient doesn't have perio, um, mm. and then you see that there's one mobile tooth, grade three mobility, um, you think it's you, you think it's an abscess, and you take the tooth out, and it doesn't heal. Um, that's that's another one as well. So um, we we've we've seen a few of these where things are just not healing for whatever reason. Um, ulcers are a lot easier because sometimes they're painful. But, you know, don't forget like sockets and things like that as well. Anything that doesn't heal properly after a procedure is expected should, should be investigated further. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So ulcers, so, things so that we don't get, heal. Mm, so usually we would expect ulcers to heal up within two weeks. So anything that is persistent for longer than two weeks, we would tend to uh, want further investigation. Other things as well are induration and fixation of the lesion. So what I mean by that is that when you palpate it, it's not soft, it's not mobile, it feels firm, and it feels like it's not moving around very well. Now, 
in um, say something like a chronic traumatic ulcer, when some when the lesion is sort of fixed and indurated, it's scar tissue that you're feeling. However, if something like an oral cavity squamous cell cancer uh, carcinoma, you could be actually palpating the tumor itself. So how mm. it feels is really important. Now, if my referrer writes to me and tells me that there is a a lesion that isn't healing and it feels indurated and it feels fixed, I'm going to triage that patient as urgent and get them in as soon as possible. So it's really important that you're providing um, any red flags that you find in the referral as well. Now, with ulcers, sometimes you can see rolled margins mm -hmm. and they are exactly what they sound like. That is another red flag sign. Um, don't forget that there are systemic signs as well beyond what you see in the oral cavity. So sometimes if a patient may have unexplained weight loss or they've got fever, they've got malaise, um, first of all, you want to ascertain that it's not something that is acute. So if they've got ulcers for about a week and they've got fever, you know, it could be something that's viral. But if it's something that is mm -hmm. persistent, unexplained weight loss, if they're feeling numbness, numbness is a big red flag. If they're feeling any of sort of unusual type symptoms, you want to be a little bit worried about. The other thing, and now we're not talking talking about oral cavity squamous cell carcinoma. Now we're talking about oral mucosal melanoma, any sort of localized pigmented lesion that doesn't have a cause for why they are there, um, I would also be treating as, as a bit of a red flag. Yeah, that's brilliant. Now, uh, you mentioned the um, altered sensation or the numbness. Mm. We've seen a bit of a, I've had a couple of cases recently where mm. pain has actually been um, a prevailing symptom. Now, of course, we were always taught that cancer is not painful. So ulcers that aren't painful are more likely to be cancer than to be an ulcer. That's what we were taught. I don't know if you have any views on that. Um, so I actually think that pain is extremely unreliable. I've had so yeah. many patients with no pain, with pain, with small amount of pain, with really severe pain. I don't really, I wouldn't really use that as a as a gauge as to whether it is cancerous or not. I would probably say that if it is painful, it is probably later. However, mm -hmm. it's it's not. I, I I wouldn't use that as as a as as a factor as to whether something is malignant or not. Yeah, no, that's really helpful, Amanda, because for the colleagues who were involved in this, the presence of pain was two things. The first thing is it was distracting them away from the oral lesion because they started looking more broadly. OK, if it's not a tooth, if it's not a pulpal issue, is it a TMJ? Is mm. it a different, you know, so they were they were mm. being distracted away from the lesion in the mouth. Mm. But the second thing is, is the colleagues were misled into believing that the presence of pain meant that the patient could not possibly have cancer. And of course, that was not proved to be the case. Mm. So I think that's really helpful as well. So I found this ulcer. Should I just uh, take a biopsy of that then? You know, it's hard, it's fixed. What do you think? <laughs> so so I get I, I, I get asked this um, every so often as well. And the reason why I don't think most people should be taking a biopsy is that taking the biopsy itself is not the difficult part. So most dental professionals are familiar with their way around sutures with the scalpel. So that's, that's not the difficult part. And that's not the reason why I'm saying someone shouldn't be doing biopsies. But it's the selecting of the correct location, interpretation of the results, liaising with the histopathologist, and then delivering the results and then managing the patient's care that is the issue. So especially in the case of head and neck cancer, the person who should be doing the biopsy should be a person that's familiar in this space and knows what to do. So to give you an example, um, a couple of years ago, I had a case where a patient, and this was the reason why this case stuck with me. I mean, first of all, first of all, it was a relative of, of, of a good friend. And second of all, it was Christmas. Uh, I think it was like um, 
on the 23rd or maybe on a Christmas Eve, where Gosh. this lady um, had a tooth of unexplained mobility and it was extracted. Now, the OPG did look a little bit strange. So the dentist who took the tooth out, curated it, sent the granulation tissue off for histopathological assessment. Now, the lesion never healed. It started to cause more and more pain, but the dentist felt that it was okay to leave because the histopathology has come back as granulation tissue. So he was like, mm -hmm. it's probably just not healing. Maybe it's osteomyelitis, antibiotics, all of that, all of that. It was actually a renal uh, cell carcinoma metastasis. And the reason why I feel that this was a case that could have been diagnosed a lot easier was that even on the OPG, you could see signs of malignancy. And I think this is what happens when someone who is not familiar with the space push puts too much stock in the histopathology. So uh, we have oral pathologists that we work very closely with. I was actually trained, actually my, my head of unit was was a was a um, oral pathologist and oral medicine specialist. And we are trained to query the results when something doesn't fit the clinical picture. So there's actually a lot that goes into a biopsy. Um, not just now for oral cancer, but if you are biopsying things like vesicular bullous conditions, you need to know what test to order. You need to have a good relationship with the person that you've sent the biopsy results to so you can call them. Because the other thing that people don't necessarily realize, and I don't want all pathologists to come after me, but they know it's true, um, that oral pathology is very distinct from anatomical pathology. So you want to be sending your biopsy results to a pathologist that has experience in head and neck. So there's, there's all of this that goes into it. Where So I don't think it's as simple as picking up a blade and hacking something off. Um, it, it, there's so much more that goes into it. And plus, if it comes back as a cancer, well, and you're not familiar in this space, like how are you going to give the results? Where are you going to send the patient to? No, I think that's really sage advice. I think it would be awful to try and do the right thing, do a biopsy, mm -hmm. get everything right, and mm -hmm. then you break the news to the patient and the patient says, what happens next? I don't that's know. It. That's it. I don't so, know. Uh, mm. How soon can I be seen? Mm. I don't know. So a very big part of our appointment where we give patients these type of results, you know, we have training in delivering bad news, which as an aside, I think most dentists uh, should look at a few of these articles, like the spikes protocol and things like that, because we all give bad news, right? Like we that, do. Mm, that your teeth need to come out, that you need to go into dentures, that your implants fail, all of this sort of stuff. But specifically in the, in the space of our head and neck cancer, my patients leave the appointment knowing when their next appointment, they know when the next steps are, where they're going to be seen, they've got options. And I think as someone who is receiving bad news it is so important to know what ne what's next because that's the first questions your your loved ones are going to ask you when you go home and you go um, I've been told that I've, I've got oral cancer and they'll go okay what's next yeah what does it mean no that's really mm. important okay so I'm not going to biopsy it <laughs> so what shall I do if I find one of these lesions and I'm thinking I don't like the way that this looks what's mm. what's my next step Mm. So we've uh, spoken about this uh, already, and I, I feel like it's becoming more common too where there is delayed diagnosis of oral cancer. Mm -hmm. The reason why it is so important is that early detection of oral cancer directly impacts prognosis. So if someone has been diagnosed with stage one oral cancer, their survivorship rates are, you know, 80, 90 percent. It's amazing, if, isn't it? Mm, and if it's stage four, it's something like 20%. So we need to catch yeah. it as early as possible. Um, I don't 
I'm sorry, I'm going a little bit off, off tangent here, but I have been thinking about why there is delayed diagnosis. Is it that dentists are not confident in telling patients that they're worried about these lesions? Is it that patients are not being seen early? Is it that they are being lost in the triage or referrals process? And to be honest, it's probably a combination of all of them. So the first advice that I would give is that if you feel that it is a malignant lesion, if there are red flags and if you are really worried about it, you should let the patient know that you are concerned that it is something serious. Now, so I think know, that you should. I you think, think that you should. should. I think mm-hmm. that you should. Okay. So, so I know that there are people that would disagree with me because obviously patients are going to become anxious and, you know, are, are they going to be really upset? And nobody likes to upset people. Um, no. but, yeah, exactly. So I, I can understand that part. But I'll tell you a story of how I've had a patient when I was a registrar in training and I thought it was an oral cancer. Now, and it looked like oral cancer. And I, I was very worried about it. And we couldn't do the biopsy that day, I think, for either, like, he, he didn't have someone to bring him. Like, there, there was a good reason why we couldn't do the biopsy that mm-hmm. day. So I reappointed him to come back in the next week to do it. Uh, he never showed up for, for the biopsy with me. And I was we, we tried. We contacted him. We sent letters, all of that. We're not able to get hold of him. And I never knew what, what happened with that patient. And I couldn't help thinking to myself, what happened if I had been honest with him about the degree of the severity that I thought this lesion was? And I had a really great overseas consultant at the time, actually. He was visiting uh, from, from the UK. And he was like, what I do in my clinic is that if I think it is serious, I let the patients know because the alternative is worse. So so obviously you have to read your patients a little bit as well. So if your patients are a little bit, you know, cavalier or they don't think it's a big deal or they'll book in for the uh, appointment with the specialist when they have some time off work, these are probably the ones that you might have to sit down and go, look, listen, I'm I'm actually quite worried about it. If you have a patient that's fairly anxious, you should still deliver the message to them that that it has to be looked at. But there's a different way that you can do it. So I think it's actually important that your patient understands because coming from a specialist perspective, sometimes we get patients who come in, they don't know what they've been referred in for or they come in. I've had a patient who came in like a year and a half after because he thought that the dentist didn't seem that worried. Now, I know that the dentist most likely didn't want to overly worry the patient, right? Because that's 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 kind of what we do. We want to be, uh, we want patients to be comfortable. But I think in this case, he misinterpreted that as being dentist didn't seem that worried. So I'll just book in when I have some time off, you know, and, and that, that can be an issue as well. So it, it is tricky. I, I do. I do understand that. But I think if you do find something that you feel is serious, um, you should be letting the patient know. But at the same time, you can also do things that let the patients know that you are taking care of them. So calling the specialist rooms and getting an appointment. Yeah leaving a message on the specialist saying, hey, I think this is serious. Can you please keep an eye out? So we really appreciate that because we get lots of referrals um, all the time and sometimes they're for things that are not as serious. But if you think that it is bad, let us know. And all of the oral medicine specialists that I know um, will do their best to get their patients in ASAP or find someone that will see that can see the patient. So giving a bit of a heads up is really important, um, I feel. And part of that, I think, and this is just like my my thing as an aside, um, you know, dentistry is a team sport, right? We're a community. So getting to know your specialist, MaxX, oral medicine, feeling comfortable to be able to call their rooms to leave a message, um, so important. And I can promise you, no one's laughing at you. So if it comes back as a chronic traumatic ulcer, we're not going, oh, ha, 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 look at that. This, this dentist didn't know. Absolutely not. We would be very grateful that you actually took the time to let us know that this patient could be urgent and then we would triage it as appropriate. 
Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And I do agree with, with what you're saying. I think that we see a lot of fear around practitioners getting to know their specialists or because we see some practitioners are worried that their specialists are going to speak ill of them to the patient or they're going to judge them. But I would the one thing I say, and we say to all young mm. practitioners in particular, as you know, Amanda, is one of the best things that you can do is build a solid group of specialists because it's not just for stuff like this that's really mm. serious and could affect mm -hmm. the patient's life. Mm -hmm. For anything, we've all been in situations where we got halfway through pulling a tooth out and mm. we couldn't get the rest of the tooth out. Gee, mm. it's nice to have your MaxFax or your oral surgeon colleague and they know you and you can say, gosh, can you help this patient out? Can you help me out? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it really helps. And 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 this is, a, I think, exemplifies why it's so important. And I think what you say is true. There are ways of letting somebody know that something's potentially serious and not downplaying it so that it, it's mm -hmm. that tension support you don't mm -hmm. want to terrify people but mm -hmm. they have to be concerned enough and know that you're concerned enough to do something about it otherwise they are just going to sit there for a year and a half and then yeah. yeah then wonder why if only if only I'd known sooner that's not really where any of us want to be do we no. now you mentioned so obviously on the referral I'm, from what we've discussed I'm going to put as much information on as I can and mm. if I'm very concerned then mm. perhaps mm. ring the practice mm -hmm. and say hey I'm concerned about this one this patient I'm, I'm referring I'm concerned about this mm -hmm. one yeah yeah brilliant okay is there anything else that I can do to expedite things for the patient or to make the process as simple as possible for them Yes. So um, this happens a little bit, uh, less so now, thankfully, where a dentist has found something in the patient's mouth and they give them a handful of name cards and they go, uh, these are all the oral medicine specialists in Perth. Give them a call and see who can see you. And that's it. That's that not helpful. A, no, and that's, that's a not helpful. <laughs> no, no, it's not. And I'm so glad that that is happening less and less. But also from the practitioner's point of view, that is a massive uh, medical legal issue because if there is a lesion, the patient, and I think this has happened before, right? The patient comes back and goes, uh, I didn't know it was serious. I was just given this bunch of name cards. You should have referred me to someone. Yeah. And then the dentist goes, no, but I did. I gave you the referral together with the name cards. But the dentist can't prove it because they haven't actually sent the referral to anyone. No. So, so the way that it works with us is that um, we receive a referral from the dentist or the dental professional, GP, whoever, we, we get a referral. We try to contact the patient and give them an appointment, especially if we think it's urgent. Now, there are reasons why patients might not show up. They may have financial issues or maybe they found someone else or maybe they feel like the lesion has disappeared. So they cancel the appointment or they don't show up. If that happens, we send the practitioner a letter back letting the practitioner know that the patient has not showed up. And this is fairly common practice among the specialists that I know for something like this, like something potentially serious. Now, the dentist now has a piece of paper or correspondence that shows that they have done the right thing. And then the dentist will then contact the patient and go, hey, I refer you to Amanda for this ulcer on the side of your tongue that I was really worried about. Why haven't you gone? And then the, and then the patient will, will give their reasons. It is documented. And, you know, that way you have done the appropriate thing and you can actually show that you've done the appropriate thing so when you're giving a referral don't forget to actually keep a copy so the way that I like people to do it is that they send a copy directly to the rooms so we've got it and we take care of everything from there mm -hmm. and then they can give the patient a copy and then they keep a copy yeah. in their file as well um, yeah. sometimes practitioners do get worried about uh, answering questions like 
how much is it going to cost? Is there parking? Is there Medicare rebate? Blah, blah, blah. My best advice for that is that tell the patients to speak to the specialist rooms for this because our reception team has a new information pack that we send out to every single patient. They answer queries on time. They tell patients where to park, bring their Medicare card, how much the health funds will cover to check with the health funds. You know, there's all of this sort of stuff that the referring practitioner does not have to get bogged down on. Their main point is to let the patient know why they're being referred and whether they think it's urgent or not. And all the other practical bits of information um, can be saw, uh, can, can can be given to the patient at another time. So I think that's really important, making sure that you keep a copy of the referral and that you actually send a copy of the referral. No, absolutely, because the referral forms part of your records. And I think I really like your point about giving a copy of the referral to the patient too. It's something that I always do because mm-hmm. I think ultimately it's the patient's secret. It's not my secret. Yeah. And I think they have the right to see what's written about them. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, they can become suspicious. All this sealed envelope, secret squirrel stuff being passed behind closed doors can make people feel uncomfortable. And also I think that the new patient pack is a really important piece of information because there can be barriers as you've said, there can be financial barriers, but there can Mm. be all sorts of barriers for patients not being confident driving to a part of town that they don't know. So it removes those barriers and makes it easier for them Mm. to attend. And the other point of yours that I wanted to loop back to was if you have referred a patient for a suspicious lesion Mm. and you get a letter back from the person you've referred to saying, this person did not show up, Mm. please, please, please do not just file that Mm. please ring that patient and ask Mm. what's going on because it might be that the ulcer's healed or it might not be. We Mm. don't just ignore important news by that. This isn't elective cosmetic treatment. This Mm. is something that could really impact on a patient's life, on their prognosis. So please, 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 it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. So Amanda, before we finish up, are there any last things you want to share with us? Pearls of wisdom, top tips, things you see people often get wrong? What what else? Have you got anything else for me on this? (laughs) Uh, I I do. And brilliant. um, yeah, I do see. So as 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 you know, I am online a lot because I do enjoy. Like it's it's. I've just been online since I was twelve. You know, I had a blog spot in high school. So <laughs> I, I'm an, I'm online a lot, and I'm I'm not saying this in a way to crucify anyone, but I mean this. Uh, in in, in a nice way, please do not rely on Facebook corridor consults because I have seen posts where people take screenshots of OPGs and put them online and people jump in and give an opinion. Number one, that is low resolution um, and image. Uh, I don't care however you've put it on a Facebook post. It's always going to be low resolution. There are things that are going to be missed. Now, especially in the context of something being quite serious, this is not the appropriate way to manage it. There are dental mixers facial radiologists that exist Australia wide and they all report well they mostly report remotely you know there, there are ways to get an image like a like an OPG or a PA or something or a CT CBCT properly reported by someone who knows what they are doing because I've seen dental maxillofacial radiologists pick up things like lymphoma SCC on 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 OPGs or in PAs. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be very careful. And sometimes I've seen people post photos of ulcers online and or should I refer this? Um, 
you have to be very careful that as a professional, you are not hanging your hat on something that someone on Facebook has has told you, myself included, right? Because I don't have all the information sometimes. So I'm very careful with the things that I say, but you also have to be careful receiving this information. And, you know, it's not a good defense if this ends up being a case. Uh, and Aline, you can speak to this. Like if, if someone tells you like, oh no, but this is what someone on Facebook said, that's not going to defend you at all. No, not at all. Because the reality of it is, is that the code of conduct says that we have to appropriately hand over or mm. refer a patient. Now, mm. it's completely acceptable to seek opinion from colleagues. It's no different from going mm. into the room next door and saying, mm. what do you think of this x-ray? But mm. it is different. Because the difference is, is that the person can come into your room and have a look themselves. That's yeah. what you're losing. You're losing that ability to actually assess the patient. And, and for colleagues who are providing advice on random x-rays too, you don't know the history of that patient, the medical history. You only have what that person has told you, what the person who's posting has considered to be important enough to tell mm. you. So you actually don't have all the facts. So you may mm. be unintentionally being misled. So I agree with you, Amanda. Gee, it's dangerous. Mm. And the other thing is, well, I mean, not only do you not, for imaging in this case, like uh, x-rays, not only do you not have all the information, you don't even have the proper image. No, you don't. Mm. No, you don't. It's a worry. So no, absolutely. Let's not rely on Facebook to diagnose cancer. Hey, anything else? <laughs> yes. So if anyone that is interested in this space or they have, are listening to this podcast and they do want to learn more, um, Head and Neck Cancer Australia have released actually a training module targeted towards dentists, dental professionals and OHTs. Uh, myself uh -huh. and Michaela, who's from the Australian Dental Association, uh, mm -hmm. we, were, we were part of the, the panel that helped that. There's a maxillofacial specialist that, that was involved in the content as well. This is a certificate thing. It's done in hour. It's done online. Um, I think it's really useful. So if you are interested, let us know. Maybe Annalene, I'll give you the link and you can pop it up. That's great, Amanda. We'll pop that in the episode notes for people. Yeah, it's via Head and Neck Cancer Australia and it's in partnership with ADA and RACGP. So I think it's a good one if you've got some time to, to, to do. So thank you so much, Amanda, for that relevant and helpful content. And thank you all for listening. We do hope this podcast was helpful to you and we look forward to sharing more guidance with you in the future. If you like Dental Protection Podcasts and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and leave a review.